This episode is dedicated to Michael O'Donnell, Devin Gritulares, Lawrence Granpre, and Carol Orenstein for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. Rick Santorum. Since losing his Pennsylvania Senate seat to Bob Casey years ago, Santorum has found one-off cable stardom. He wasn't particularly well-known for his views on Native Americans until today. When this surfaced, a portion of his remarks to the Young Americas Foundation. We came here and created a blank slate. We, we birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there was nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but, if, but candidly, that, that, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. This is Sam. This is Jonathan. And this is Southpaw. This is part one of our two-part episode on the history of Cuba. If you want immediate access to part two, along with other exclusive bonuses, please support the Southpaw Project on Patreon. Your financial contribution will not only help us grow, but also help us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist and continue to produce important educational episodes like this one without your support. Thank you. Today on Southpaw, we have Professor Jonathan Detman. Professor Detman is an associate professor of Spanish as well as the department chair. His current scholarship covers Cuba, the Caribbean, the Southern Cone, and the U.S. Southwest. He's also taught classes in critical theory and comparative literature. Thank you for being on the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So Cuba is a country that most Americans learn nothing about in school, but have lots of opinions about. However, many documentaries, interviews, books, and articles focus solely on the revolutionary period. But for me and the theme of this podcast, I'm much more interested in the untold history, focusing more on indigenous African descendants and life before and after Spanish conquest. That's what this episode will be about then, ending with the revolutionary period rather than starting with the revolutionary period, because I think we need to fully understand the context that led to the revolution to fully appreciate the revolution, and even in how to think about Cuba today. So let's start with Cuba before the Europeans. How early did some of the first inhabitants live there? Well, I think your intro was spot on as far as um, American education producing, I guess, very few facts about Cuba, but definitely certain opinions, right? And I think education here tends to produce two ideas about Cuba, uh, in my experience. One is that it's a tyranny whose people are suffering from human rights abuses and a general lack of freedom. Uh, and two, that socialism doesn't work. Those are the two ideas that we get, and, and they are often taken as fact, and they are remarkably impervious to any sort of counter-evidence or counter-arguments. So 
I hope this episode can be the beginning of a more thorough and uh, less tilted view of Cuba and its history. Um, and to answer your question, to start at the very beginning of that history or prehistory, the first humans to inhabit Cuba are estimated to have arrived between eight to 10,000 years ago. And these first inhabitants were primarily foragers who lived in caves and rock shelters along the coasts. Uh, they lived on a diet of fish, shellfish, and plants. And they left behind rock art, burial sites, evidence of artisanal labor. But as far as I know, they left no freestanding free structures, unlike some of the other groups on the American continent. So I mentioned that we learned very little. So one misunderstanding a lot of us have is the assumption that there was nothing in Cuba before the Europeans. And so in that way of thinking there's nothing there, then the assumption is that there was no tyranny or there was nothing bad happening in Cuba until much later. You can't commit genocide or have brutal conquest if there's no one there. Much like the white supremacist idea, former presidential candidate and CNN correspondent Rick Santorum repeated, essentially quoting the KKK movie, birth of a nation. So what was there before Europeans doesn't count as humanity, making the conflict between the European settlers and Europe the first human conflict. But to make settlers the victims, you have to erase the original inhabitants and even the enslaved, right? Um, so we already know that there were inhabitants there that go way back. And it wasn't just one group, right? Wasn't it multiple different indigenous groups over time? Yes, that, that is correct. So in addition to the group um, that I mentioned, the, the first inhabitants of Cuba, um, there was at least one other group um, or, or cultural group, I should say, that inhabited the island prior to the arrival of Europeans and Africans. So we have that first group, those first inhabitants, the pre-agricultural culture that I just mentioned. Uh, later on, around 200 BCE, archaeological evidence points to the emergence of agricultural society. And agriculture seems to have been brought to the island by a different group of people whom we now identify as the Taino culture. The Tainos were agro-ceramicists, meaning that they farmed and made pottery, and they seem to have displaced or replaced the earlier inhabitants. So we can assume that there was uh, at least some level of conflict or competition uh, between those two groups, although we have very little information about exactly what that looked like. At the time of Columbus's arrival, um, there appear to still have been pre-agricultural peoples in western Cuba, and these people are sometimes identified as the Guana Atabe. And so these two groups, the Guana Atabe and the Taino, and these are very broad labels that refer really to general cultural characteristics uh, rather than um, being labels that these people would have applied to themselves. These two groups seem to have coexisted in Cuba for several centuries prior to the arrival of European colonists, at which time the Taino peoples were the major culture throughout the greater Antilles, living on the islands we now call Puerto Rico, Hispaniola, Jamaica, Cuba, and others. The Tainos in Cuba 
included a group called the Sibonet, and it is this label that appears most often in representations of Cuba's indigenous people. By the 1800s, Spanish Cubans had produced a kind of romanticized history of the Sibonet, who were confused often with the Guana Atabe, and they were used to create an allegory of nativeness in which Spanish Cubans identified themselves with indigenous peoples. In essence, they told a story of the Sibonet being dominated by a more powerful group of indigenous invaders. But this was really a disguise for the story that Spanish Cubans, known as Creoles, wanted to tell about themselves and their struggle for autonomy from peninsular Spain. And your listeners are most likely aware that in the United States, indigenous peoples were romanticized and mythologized, even as they were systematically marginalized, displaced, and killed. And a similar phenomenon occurred in Cuba. One of the things I think about in how this is taught in school, not necessarily Cuban history, but just Spanish, quote unquote, explorers coming to the Americas is the term discover. And also even the term explorer itself is a euphemism for conqueror. But this idea of discover assumes then that these were the first people to discover this area. I guess because of that, today we think then there must have been nothing there. I think it's not explicitly said, but because of the language, we kind of assume there was nothing there or assume no personhood for the people that were already there because only humans can discover. This is more of an aside about how history is told and the framework in which it is told is very problematic. And from the perspective of, I would say, racism, white supremacy, and from the perspective of the conquerors to make sure they sound and look good. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It attributes um, all agency to to Europeans. Um, it makes it seem like the prior habitation of the American continent uh, by indigenous peoples was of no consequence, right? Um, and really, history began when Europeans arrived, when they supposedly discovered America. It invalidates everything prior. And you already touched upon this. But what was Cuba like right before the arrival of Europeans? And were the Taino the dominant group at the time? Yes. Um, the Taino society known as the Sibonet would have been the predominant group in Cuba, at least in its east, eastern and central regions at the time of Columbus's arrival. Uh, the island itself looked much different then. Uh, Cuba today has its share of rural areas, some of which are forested. But at that time, the island was almost entirely covered with old-growth hardwood forests, ancient mahogany, cedar, ebony, saba, and ironwood trees, towering palm trees, impenetrable mangrove forests along the coasts. And Columbus was, oddly enough, perhaps the first person to provide information that foreshadowed climate change in the Caribbean. He noted that, that much of the weather on Cuba and other Caribbean islands was impacted by the dense forests and the humidity that they retained. And he noted that the Canary Islands had been the same way until the forests had been cut down, after which point uh, those islands received less rainfall and became subject to drought. Uh, 
So the island was different in both human and ecological terms prior to the arrival of Europeans. And what was society like? Were there villages? And if so, how big were some of these villages? Um, I can't say with with exactitude uh, what Cuba's indigenous population was at that time. Um, I can say that the Cibonet were an agricultural society who produced uh, what seems to be a surplus of of food that would have supported a very large population. Um, population estimates are notoriously problematic from the pre-Columbian period, and they're often subject of, of intense debate. Um, I think sometimes the focus on population numbers um, while it comes from a place of trying to understand the magnitude of of, of the Holocaust, of the genocide, um, tends to put the focus on on disease, which um, kind of gives the Europeans a pass in some of this, right? Because they can say, "Oh well, it wasn't us; it was it was these contagious diseases that killed off the Native Americans." Uh, when in fact uh, the European the Europeans themselves contributed very directly to population decline uh, beyond the matter of disease because they uh, they enslaved the native population they made war on them they tortured and killed them in in some cases as well. So who were these first Europeans to arrive in Cuba? Uh, Columbus and his crew in 1492. So we all remember the old rhyme uh, mm-hmm. about Columbus from our school days. Um, so yeah, he would have been the first. Uh, he reached the coasts of Cuba on uh, all four of his voyages. Um, and yeah, the the idea that he was the discoverer of America is wrong in a sense, right? Um, you know, he was the first or one of the first Europeans to arrive uh, in the Americas. But he was somewhat ironically the great discoverer who never discovered where exactly he was, right? Um, you know, some historians think that to the end of his life, he really didn't understand that he had not in fact reached Asia. So I like to think of Columbus's uh, subsequent voyages after the first one as him kind of wandering around aimlessly, trying to figure out whether he was in Japan or India. And Columbus was Italian, but this was not an Italian expedition, correct? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. The arrival of Columbus the first time probably didn't mean full conquest. And you already mentioned this earlier about disease, but did disease spread from that first arrival? Uh, I think it's likely that it did. Um, We do know that in some areas, uh, disease actually arrived before uh, the Europeans, because they had arrived in one part of the continent and disease traveled faster than they did. So, for instance, by the time that the Spanish arrived in what is now Peru, disease had already taken its toll on uh, a significant portion of the Incas and had sparked a succession crisis among the Inca ruling class. And that had produced a division um, and internal strife, which kind of laid the groundwork and the conditions for the Spanish conquest. Um, so yeah, when when Europeans arrived in 
the so-called new world. They brought with them, obviously, themselves and whatever diseases they carried, but they also brought with them domestic animals. Uh, and those domestic animals were a significant vector of uh, disease propagation. And so anywhere that they established a settlement and even anywhere they went on uh, expeditions, um, either to explore or to conquer and claim an area, they brought with them horses, pigs, uh, dogs. And uh, as we know, uh, domestic uh, animals are a huge disease vector. So in a sense, disease becomes the herald of conquest to lay the groundwork to make conquest easier, whether they intended to or not, that's kind of how it worked out. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, I guess we could call disease the handmaiden of, of colonization, or I don't, I don't know if that's a good analogy, but uh, certainly it went hand in hand with colonization. The, um, for instance, uh, if we're thinking about the North American colonies, um, there is scholarship that shows that disease had spread among the indigenous peoples of what became New England, even prior to the establishment of Plymouth Colony. And the pilgrims really only survived that first winter because nearby villages had been abandoned by indigenous peoples who had suffered the effects of disease mortality and moved on uh, elsewhere. And the surplus food left behind is what enabled the Europeans to even survive. Which runs counter to the friendship alliance. That's the way we're usually taught about it, not just in school, but just in media and just in the air. Right. The idea that, that friendly Native Americans uh, helped them plant corn and that sort of thing. Well, friendly Europeans making friends with the friendly Native Americans. Right. Did religious conversion also start immediately from arrival? Uh, yes, uh, at least uh, in the case of the Spanish colonists. Um, conversions and forced conversions were part of the colonization process. Uh, many Spanish Christians felt morally obligated um, because of their religion to evangelize indigenous peoples. But this evangelization was often done at sword point. There's a Spanish priest, Bartolomé de las Casas, who is well known for denouncing the abuses that the Spanish perpetrated on Native Americans. And one story he tells is of an indigenous leader named Atue, who led the fight against the Spanish conquest of Cuba. And as Las Casas tells it, Atue was captured after fierce resistance and condemned to death. A priest was called in to explain the Christian religion to him, and offer the condemned man a chance to repent and go to heaven. Atue, after learning about the concepts of heaven and hell, asked if the Spanish expected to go to heaven. And he was told that as Christians, of course, yes, they would go to heaven. And he then replied that he would prefer to go to hell to avoid seeing them again, and thereby refusing conversion. Uh, and for Las Casas, this was a tragedy uh, because he thought that the atrocious behavior of the Spanish was undermining the goal of converting Native Americans to Christianity. But we can read this as a, as a sign of resistance to Christianity and indeed an example of dignity in the face of cultural and military domination. And that's something I spoke to Gerald Horn about, this idea, even with 
the enslaved Africans and uh, African descendants that there were no history of resistance. I don't know if it's changed since I was a kid, but the way it was taught to me was that there was no resistance, but that was not the case at all. Whether it was indigenous people in the Americas or Africans fighting off enslavers and resisting all the way to the Americas and resisting again in the Americas, there's always been resistance. That's right. Uh, resistance of um, or by oppressed peoples towards uh, colonists and their oppressors was um, widespread and tenacious and constant. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the reason that it's, that it's downplayed is because of white supremacy. Um, you know, during the days of slavery, uh, they didn't want word to get out that there were revolts and rebellions happening because that might inspire somebody else to do the same, right? Uh, they were, they were very afraid of this. Um, and so they tried to keep, uh, that information, um, from getting out. Of course, it, it did get out, and enslaved people were extremely aware of what was going on elsewhere and, and really rooting for uh, rebellions that they, they heard about in other places and, and sort of dreaming of, of doing the same where they lived. Uh, resistance was also not always seen in the form of armed resistance, but um, sometimes in sort of classic uh, workers' resistance, right, to exploitation. Um, work stoppages, work slowdowns, sabotage of equipment, sabotage of the product, um, and even uh, more extreme forms like um, self-harm, suicide, um, killing um, their own children in some cases to um, spare them a life of slavery, um, poisoning their, their masters, their oppressors, their owners. Um, so forms of resistance were numerous and ongoing throughout the entire period of slavery. And this is kind of an aside outside of the topic of Cuba, but why shouldn't we use the term slaves? Because we're talking about enslaved people, but I think even well-meaning people still accidentally use that term slaves or are unaware of why that term would be problematic. As an academic, could you give us a quick primer about why we shouldn't use that term anymore? I think the idea um, behind using the term enslaved persons rather than slaves is that it emphasizes the humanity of the people who had been enslaved. It emphasizes that they were enslaved by someone else. There was this process of domination, and it kind of de-objectifies them, whereas the term, the term slaves, I think, it too easily slips into that that negative register right and and that dehumanizing register now going back to columbus and these early trips can you expand a little bit more about what that early colonization looked like before we had settlers in cuba and how they laid the groundwork for that full settler colonialism yeah so just briefly uh an overview uh in cuba at least colonization had several stages uh, first was the establishment of permanent settlements and the imposition of Spanish rule on the native population through a system called encomiendas, um, which I, I can explain a bit uh, later. Um, and this process coincided with the enslavement of the native population 
um, in the exploitation of whatever precious metals and materials were readily available. Forests began to be cleared for grazing, and the wood was used for shipbuilding, firewood, and furniture. Uh, very quickly, Cuba became, however, a second-tier colony because there were larger territories on the mainland with richer resources, um, richer sources of raw materials, silver, larger native populations to exploit. So Cuba became a bit of an economic backwater, uh, but it was still the launching point for military expeditions into Florida and Mexico as those places were colonized. Um, but for a couple of centuries, Cuba's primary importance was for the port of Havana and for its strategic location, um, commanding, as it does, the entrance to the Gulf of Mexico. And Cuba's status as a backwater um, continued really until the late 18th century when the island's economy was transformed and it became a major export producer. In high school, I remember learning that Spanish colonialism was about the three G's. You already touched about the metals, but the three G's being gold, God, and glory. No mention of the disease part of it, which we know was also integral to this. But when speaking of gold, in this case was both literal, but also figurative to mean expanding wealth, which you just touched upon. But with this idea of the three G's, gold, God and glory. Would you say this is accurate as far as the reasoning for Spanish conquest, Spanish colonialism? I think so. I think all three of those things are bound up in colonization, um, colonialism as as motivations. Um, gold, in some cases, is a misnomer because it was really silver that uh, provided much of the impetus for the growing European economy during the colonial era. Uh, religion is certainly one aspect of colonialism, and it's an important one. Spain at that time was essentially a newborn in terms of its existence as a modern nation state. Um, and one way of thinking about this is that Spain was born, practically born as a global empire, rather than becoming one slowly over time. The marriage of Isabel and Ferdinand had been a political marriage to unify the two largest Spanish kingdoms under a single government. And that unification process and construction of a national identity included a religious consolidation. The same year of Columbus's first voyage, 1492, was also the year that Castile, a Christian kingdom, conquered Granada, which was the last Muslim-ruled kingdom in Iberia. And it was the year in which both Jews and Muslims were expelled from Spain. And so the process of Spain's political unification, which had taken place slowly over the course of almost 800 years, had by this time begun to be reimagined in religious terms, Christians versus Muslims. If we look at early Spanish literature, like the poem of El Cid, uh, we, we can see that by this time it had be, be, begun to be read as a crusader text, even though it is pretty obvious that the military alliances described in that poem, right, which describe um, alliances that happened several hundred years earlier, these alliances don't line up neatly with religious affiliations. But by the time 
of the colonization of the Americas, a kind of Orientalist crusader mentality had taken hold in Spain. And the Spaniards brought this mentality with them to the Americas, the Americas, where indigenous people, rather than Muslims, became the boogeyman, the other. Uh, another point about um, religion is that at that time, we didn't have um, thoroughly modern concepts of race in terms of it being a, a biological category, um, which came later with with the invention of modern science. Um, so the exact um, sort of biological racial categories that we've inherited didn't exist yet. Uh, religious differences, um, though, were thought of in terms of blood and lineage, in part because after the Jews and Muslims were expelled, many of them went underground, or they underwent real or false conversions to Christianity in order to preserve their lives and livelihoods. And that produced a kind of paranoia in Spain about real and false Christians. Uh, recall that this is also the time of the Inquisition and the Counter-Reformation. So there was a lot of religious anxiety. And so there's this paranoia about you know, being an authentic Christian, about purity of bloodlines. And this obsession with bloodlines and breeding formed the basis for the emergence of a color hierarchy or caste system in Spanish America. And this was a system of classifications based on what sort of mixed blood you had or how much non-Spanish blood you had. And uh, your listeners can Google Costa paintings, that's C-A-S-T-A, and see visual re representations of these classifications that, that are from the time of colonization. On the matter of gold and glory, um, it's true that many individuals were motivated by, by profit and fame. There were minor nobility known as hidalgos that were seeking money, celebrity, power. Um, Cortes, the conquistador of Mexico, is probably the paradigmatic example of this. Uh, he was a man of truly psychopathic ambition. But of course, this is only part of the story and, and describes only one of the social classes involved in colonization. Uh, many of the early voyages, including Columbus's, involved mainly professional sailors, um, some of whom were criminals looking to earn a pardon. Um, later expeditions included military personnel, uh, professional, professional soldiers, um, and some of whom were like Cortez, um, but some of whom were were of more um, we, what we would say today as working class um, origin. Um, and some of them were forced recruits. So ambition, um, glory does explain um, the motivation for some of them, but not all of them. I think a lot of people went to America just um, as economic necessity or to stay out of jail, that kind of thing. So a better explanation is maybe more structural than individual. And it's an answer that we, we get at if we start with a question of why a Genoese Italian, Columbus, partnered with the rulers of Spain to look for a maritime trade route to Asia. 
there's an economist called um, Giovanni Arrighi um, who described the history of capitalism as a series of what he called regimes of accumulation. And these are cycles of wealth accumulation and stagnation associated with geographical centers of global capitalism. And so currently we are in uh, what Arrighi called the long 20th century with the United States at the center of global capitalism. And it's pretty obvious that we are nearing the end of the United States' time as, as the top dog, um, but it's not yet clear what will follow. Um, some have predicted the rise of China or the Asian tigers um, as a new regime of accumulation. Um, but there are reasons to, to wonder if that actually is going to happen or if there will even be another regime of accumulation in capitalism. But in any case, the, the U.S. cycle was preceded by a British cycle, which was preceded by a Dutch cycle, as these countries took their turn as the leading hubs of global finance. And prior to the Dutch, during the, the 15th and 16th centuries, the Genoese were at the center of, of global, or perhaps it's better to say globalizing, commerce. The Spanish were allied with the Italians and functioned as their military muscle. Italian banks provided the cash, the Spanish provided the swords and ships, and together they helped to build the trans-Mediterranean commercial network that formed the core of an expanding capitalist or proto-capitalist system. And this expanding network wanted to grow. Um, and one of its limitations was that its access to Asian products and markets was limited, um, both by the length and danger of the Silk Road, the overland route to Asia, as well as by the presence of the Ottoman Empire and its rivalry with European powers over supremacy in the Mediterranean. So Europeans began looking for alternate routes to Asia, um, and that's what Columbus was doing. By the time of his voyage, the Spanish and Portuguese had already expanded their commercial and territorial claims along the coast of Africa into the Cape Verdes, the Azores, and the Canary Islands, which can be seen as previews or dry runs of the colonization of the Americas. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So the initial impetus sounds like it was economic as far as trying to find new trade routes, right? And then everything else comes along with that, the God and glory. But initially it was about trade and trying to find access and economic reason to get to Asia faster and cheaper. Yeah, that is my reading of history. Um, 
a certain level of competition among European powers. The, the Portuguese were, you know, rounding the, uh, the Cape of Good Hope. You know, they were they were nearing their own trade route, establishing their own trade route to Asia, and so the Spanish became a bit nervous. They wanted to stay uh, relevant, right, in in the rush to these new markets and, and economic expansion. And so that's why they rolled the dice on on Columbus. And in school, we often learn that, well, everybody thought the world was flat, but Columbus was some kind of visionary who, who you know, he, he knew the world was round. He was a genius. Um, but that's actually not the case. Um, most um, of, the, of the intellectuals of the time knew perfectly well that the world was round. And in fact, they had a better calculation of the dimensions of the globe than Columbus did. Columbus appears to have based his calculations of, of the size of the globe and the size of the ocean on inaccurate accounts from people like Marco Polo. He was a big fan of Marco Polo. He had read you know, all of his, his travel writings. And so Columbus thought the route to Asia via the ocean was much shorter than it really is because Columbus had miscalculated the size of the globe. And so really everyone was telling Columbus, well, you'll never make it. It's too far. Um, and so the debate and, and the reluctance of anyone to, to invest in Columbus, in Columbus's idea was um, based on a more accurate uh, calculation of the size of the planet than, than his. And this also sounds like just early risk-reward calculations that you see big corporations and big companies do all the time now. Back then, they were like, well, we could send that. If they don't come back, we could afford that. But if they do come back, find a better route or find access to more resources, then you know it's almost like a unicorn, right. what they call in uh, startup investing. It doesn't take much but the benefit could be huge. Correct. And so it seems like that kind of logic was already starting before there ever was a capitalism, which actually touches upon another point I had from listening to the explanation you gave, which is that people think there was this era of colonialism, and then we had a separate era of capitalism, and they have nothing to do with each other, when in fact, colonialism created the what you were referring to this capital accumulation period for these rich european white countries and once they had the capital this is where capitalism is given birth they had to accumulate that capital from what now becomes these poor countries today and that accumulated capital in the western world is where we derive capitalism from so it's not separate periods but in fact an evolution and in a way, you could even think of capitalism as still a type of colonialism. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, the birth of capitalism is is in most accounts um, associated with the Industrial Revolution in England, and I think that's that's part of the story. But and and this may make me a bad Marxist or or a heterodox Marxist at least. But I tend to think of the colonial era as the the birth era of capitalism, where colonialism synergized with um, capitalist or capitalist like um, financial practices and, and commercial practices that already existed in in the Mediterranean world and and allowed them to expand worldwide. 
And to your point about possibly this becoming the end of the United States at the top of the capitalist pyramid, back in my day as a financial advisor, and a lot of my criticisms of capitalism actually comes from actually working in the financial sector and seeing how messed up it is. But there's an old saying, and when I say old is relative, it's just an old investment saying, which is this idea that trees can't grow forever, but they can grow very, very, very tall, <laughs> which is to say, yeah, the U.S. can't keep accumulating and can't be number one forever, but they can go for a very, 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 very long time. So I do believe that it'll eventually come to an end. Whether that time is imminent, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And we could, we could extend that observation to capitalism itself, right? Um, you know, for centuries, you know, people have been saying, well, it, it can't go on much longer, and yet it somehow finds a way. So it is, is risky to predict its demise, um, but we all hope that it will happen soon. <laughs> Even flat Earth, right? <laughs> you just <laughs> talked about a, a period where people thought the Earth was flat, and somehow it keeps trucking along. Yeah, there might be more people now who believe that the Earth is flat than there were back then. I'm not sure. I think that is actually uh, statistically sound. <laughs> One last point I had just based off of the things you said, it got me thinking about race as a construct. You said how race became formalized is through science, through this early scientific period and trying to classify. So I think what people don't appreciate then is during that time, they said they were just looking for objective truth, just like they do today. But that was very much racist race science. And, and so it made me think racist race science is where we even got the idea of categories of race. So we're stuck with it because we need to understand race to understand the atrocities and the harm that's been caused. But at the same time, it was always grounded and founded upon racist ideas. Yeah, yeah. And and what I mean when I when I bring up the idea of scientific uh, or biological based racism is basically just just that the the underpinnings um for race uh or racism have have shifted over time whereas you know prior to Darwin for instance and, and uh, our increased understanding of, of evolution and genetics it's not that racism didn't exist, because um, certainly there was uh, discrimination that looked exactly like racism does today. It's just that the the understanding of what race itself was was slightly different. Mm -hmm. Rather than being based on, say, your genes, it would have been based on uh, your religion um, or your your lineage. Right? And so they did understand, you know, breeding and animal husbandry and so forth. And so they did have uh, a limited understanding of, of genetics um, in, in Europe at that time. But it wasn't quite as developed and scientific um, as it is today. So race science was trying to civilize this proto-racism that existed prior yeah, that's that's one way. You know, gives it it gives it a veneer of um, scientific rigor. Now, going back to Cuba, what happened under Spanish conquest and the subsequent colonial rule? Well, if we're looking at the overall import of Spanish colonization, I, I would say that uh, the colonization of the Americas was 
probably the most enormously consequential event in human history. Not only was it devastating to Native Americans, uh, precipitously reducing their population numbers, depriving the survivors of political and cultural autonomy, uh, the contact between hemispheres produced a phenomenon known as the Columbian Exchange, which introduced new plants, animals, and diseases to both hemispheres, literally changing the world and the human conception of the world. And it wasn't that everyone suddenly realized the world was round, right? Because most educated persons knew that already, but that everyone's view of the world map and their own position on that map changed. Um, the extractive nature of the early colonial economy uh, had devastating effects on local ecology and climate. And with the gen genocide of Native Americans and the suppression of their culture and religions, uh, thousands of years of traditional ecological and agricultural knowledge was lost. And as the Spanish and other Europeans established permanent colonies, many of them underpinned by slave labor, racism emerged as both explanation and justification for such a system. Racial categories and forms of racial discrimination that persist today have their roots in the colonial era. And in addition to racial identities, uh, geographical identities began to emerge, even among whites with the same national origin. So distinctions were drawn between peninsular Spaniards and Creole Spaniards, those born on the American continent. And sometimes these differences were even described in ways similar to those, uh, to, to racial differences, um, which shows how quickly and arbitrarily subordinate groups can become racialized. We are aware of how many Europeans were coming over to North America in what is now the United States. So how many Europeans were coming over to Cuba during this period? Was it just a small settler colony and it just grew from there? Or was there a constant influx of Europeans coming? And was it just Spanish Europeans coming or were there other Europeans coming? I'd say primarily Spanish, um, at least in the first um, two or three centuries of colonization in Cuba. Um, of course, other Europeans were present, um, but in, in smaller numbers. I think relatively speaking, um, the, the permanent settlements in Cuba remained rather small compared to other places like Mexico or Peru, um, the major uh, colonial capitals that, that began to develop uh, in Bogota, Mexico, Lima, um, even Buenos Aires. Um, so Cuba was was kind of small potatoes for a long time. Um, white immigration, interestingly enough, uh, really intensified as a response to a growing concern and fear about the number of enslaved persons from Africa on the island. They, the, the Creoles in particular, um, began to worry greatly about being outnumbered by Africans, and they, they really feared for their safety. Um, and so they began to promote and encourage the uh, mass immigration of white laborers from, from Spain, not just Spain, but certain areas, uh, Canary Islands and uh, Galicia in particular, uh, places where um, there were um, more, like a more, more of a surplus of um, farming labor. Um, 
poor people, um, economically um, impoverished areas. Those are the areas that tended to produce um, white immigration to Cuba. Would this be called blanqueamiento? Absolutely, yes. And can you explain what that is? Sure. Like in this context, blanqueamiento is the whitening of the overall population of the island. And that was certainly a goal that uh, Cuba's leaders had at the time. Um, there's another way in which that term is sometimes used, blanqueamiento, and that refers to uh, sometimes an individual person of color who wishes to pass as white or appear more white. Going back to the difference between peninsular Spaniards and Creoles, um, the, the subordination of the Creoles uh, began to breed resentment and also a sense of identity among those American-born Creoles. And they eventually began to seek autonomy and eventually independence from their European overlords. Uh, and occasionally this included identifying themselves with and allying with Native Americans and Africans in their struggle for independence. Uh, but this whole process took several centuries and, of course, coexisted with white supremacy. The Creole colonists may have sometimes identified with Africans or Native Americans as symbols of resistance to European domination or because they needed them to help fight against the European power. But they rarely proved willing to relinquish their own racial and class positions. Uh, there have been very few John Browns in the history of colonialism and slavery. Now, tell us about the arrival of enslaved Africans and the new dynamic that was created, because I think we're much more familiar with that process when we think of the United States, at least for us who live here, because I think a lot of people aren't even aware that Cuba had slavery. Slavery really began in Cuba with Columbus's arrival, so from the very beginning, um, because he and his crew uh, forcibly removed indigenous people, uh, bringing them to Europe as novelties or souvenirs. And then, of course, when they established uh, military outposts and permanent settlements, indigenous labor was exploited, mainly in those extractive industries like mining. And that caused the native population to decline to nearly zero in some places, including Cuba. And at that point, Africans began to be imported as an alternative. Um, also, enslaved Africans were present in Spain prior to the colonization of the Americas, even. Uh, Africans were then, of course, present among the colonizers. One of the only survivors of uh, what is known as the Narvaez expedition to Florida was, was an African named Esteban. And this man appears in Cabeza de Vaca, whose name might be familiar to uh, students uh, in the United States who may have learned the names of the, the conquistadors, right? Um, this man shows up in Cabeza de Vaca's description of this failed expedition. And uh, is also the subject of a really good novel, uh, Leila Lalami's The Moor's Account. Um, which kind of describes that expedition from the perspective of this African man. Um, but the mass enslavement of Africans and the rise of entire economies based on slave labor would only happen later with uh, the launch of the sugar industry. And so to provide a little bit of context for the rise of sugar, uh, if you go back to the 15th century, sugar was extremely rare in Europe. 
It was weighed by the gram. It was kept in safes or vaults, uh, sold in small medicinal quantities, uh, like a drug, basically. Sugar and rare spices were hugely profitable commodities, whose only source at the time was the overland route from Asia. And this was the reason that European monarchs were seeking alternative trade routes. By the time of Columbus's voyages, Spain had already piloted a colonial sugar plantation in the Canary Islands, and it was from those islands that Columbus introduced sugarcane to the Americas. The, the center of the sugar industry shifted over time. Um, by the time Cuba became the world's major sugar producer, the industry had left its deadly human and environmental legacy in several other countries. Uh, beginning in Brazil's northeast, where Dutch capital investment in slaves and sugar plantations created what was arguably the first and largest slave economy in the Americas, right? Um, over 3 million Africans in total were forcibly relocated to Brazil to work in this industry. And that industry eventually uh, destroyed the soil of northeast Brazil and plunged the, the whole region into a centuries-long cycle of drought and underdevelopment. But uh, when that happened, the industry simply shifted north into the Caribbean, right? First to Barbados, then to Saint-Domingue, the French colony that we now know as Haiti. And it was there that Toussaint Louverture's revolution finally put an end to the, the so-called big whites, the Grand Blanc, the planters that were profiting off of sugar in that colony. Um, many of those planters, uh, after the Haitian Revolution, uh, simply fled to Cuba, uh, which is uh, just a few miles away. Um, and it was there in Cuba um, that big sugar relocated by the end of the 1700s. And so to put sugarcane slavery into perspective in terms of numbers, Cuba alone accounts for more than double the amount of enslaved Africans as the United States, where cotton and tobacco were the major industries employing slave labor. Brazil had perhaps 10 times as many as the United States. And this is not to diminish the significance of slavery in the United States, which probably did more to prolong slavery than any other country, but simply to highlight scale of slavery that was associated with sugar cultivation. And so when you mention that, people may not even be aware that slavery um, existed in places like Cuba or Brazil. Um, they're really missing a lot because those were places that, along with the United States, uh, employed intensive slave labor. And those three countries are where slavery persist persisted the longest of any other countries. And I think that happens actually not just from ignorance, but also from white supremacy or racism that in the U.S., the ideal of whiteness is so high, so pure, let's say so wasp that the idea of slavery happening in Latin America wouldn't make sense because to them, those are all brown, non-white people, and that only white people are superior enough to enslave other people, especially non-white people. And they see these Latin Americans as the same types of people that they would have enslaved. 
So how can they be enslavers? They're not welcome in the club. Yeah, yeah. Slavery and, and racism in general. I think some some white Americans would be surprised to learn that uh, some Latin Americans exhibit racism towards other Latin Americans because, like you say, there's kind of a homogenizing tendency. And then there's also the matter of U.S. centrism and the fact that our system of education does not tell us much about what happens and what has happened in the world beyond the U.S. borders. And speaking of slavery, Cuba was one of the areas you said that persisted in slavery for the longest or one of the longest. So how bad was slavery in Cuba? Was it chattel slavery where you were permanent slave yourself, your children? Was there laws where African descendants could not ever be free? Yeah, um, exactly. Um, Cuba was the second to last country to formally abolish slavery. The United States was the third to last, and Brazil was the very last. Um, in the U.S., uh, slavery was formally abolished um, during the Civil War, as we know. Um, but in Cuba and Brazil, it persisted for around another two decades. Um, and as far as how bad it was in Cuba, um, it was quite bad, probably worse than any of us can imagine. Um, to answer your question about um, how it worked in terms of the legal status of slaves, it, it was chattel slavery. The particular laws were modified over time, um, you know, based on on pressure from the international community that was that was put on Spain and then Cuba. Um, to abolish first the slave trade and then to try to phase out slavery. And so one of the ways they tried to phase out slavery was to end the so-called uh, ley del vientre, which meant that um, anyone born to an enslaved woman would also be a slave. And they started to modify those laws so um so blacks born in Cuba would not automatically become slaves, but those laws were not always uniformly enforced. And so um, a lot of times people were enslaved illegally. In fact, even after the Civil War, when blacks in the U.S. were free, they actually ran the risk of being re-enslaved if they went to Cuba. So. Um, you know, because slavery still existed there. And in the, in the U.S., I think there's something that uh, that the historian James Lowen has called the the white myth of Reconstruction, which attempts to downplay the horrors of slavery by making it out as something that was mostly benevolent and paternalistic. And the claim is that that many black people were better off during slavery. Um, and the idea was to portray Reconstruction as this complete disaster that ruined the economy of the South and and made made black people even worse off than they had been before. But this is categorically not the case, uh, whether we're talking about the U.S. or Cuba. First of all, if you were a slave, you were property, meaning that you had no rights over your own body or even your children, who could be sold by your white owner. You know, we rightly protest family separation among migrants at the border, 
but family separation was a feature of slavery, uh, inseparable from the institution. Keeping people enslaved requires constant violence. I won't describe all of the torture methods that were employed in Cuba, but they were numerous and sadistically creative. There were contract killers called rancheadores. Uh, They were employed to hunt fugitive slaves. They used machetes and vicious dogs to do so. When these rancheadores were employed by slave owners, they tried to capture fugitives alive in order to recover what was considered lost property. But when they were employed by the government, they often just killed fugitives because the bounty was the same. There were armed militias um, that made regular forays into mountainous areas where fugitives attempted to build communities and live away from whites. And really, the whole of white society in Cuba was militarized to maintain control. And in the last instance, they could rely on the Spanish army. Conspiracies, real and imagined, were regularly uncovered, and the conspirators were publicly executed. The violence was constant, um, but so was resistance. We have uh, a journal left by a man named Estevez, who was one of these slave hunters in the 1830s. And his diary describing his excursions into into what Cubans call the monte, the the wilderness, the forests, the the countryside. Um, It's actually quite monotonous, right? Because it's just a bunch of place names, places they went, dates punctuated by what are mostly fruitless pursuits, uh, the occasional capture, and also killings. And the diary is is kind of interesting in the sense that it it's almost like a soldier's diary from Vietnam or any other counterinsurgency campaign. Um, there's this, this constant anxiety about the the blacks living in the countryside, um, much like you would see um, an anxiety among U.S. imperialist soldiers who are out there trying to find, like, the Viet Cong, right, or any other insurgent group, um, you know, a group that could just disappear into the wilderness whenever they wanted um, and, and were very hard to deal with. And so the slave hunter ultimately concludes that that his job is impossible, that they will never be able to capture all of the fugitives, which gives you a sense of how widespread the phenomenon of escaped slaves was and how entrenched it was, how difficult it was for them to deal with, Um, in part because um, in Cuba, at least, fugitive slaves could often blend in with the enslaved persons that were still on plantations. They could move in and out of those plantations to sleep, to get food, and they would be um, protected by and aided by the people who were still living on those plantations. And so there was a lot of collaboration between persons who were still enslaved and persons who were fugitives. As Cuba was transitioning away from a slave-based sugar economy and into a wage labor regime, 
uh, one of the stopgap measures that they used was the importation of Chinese laborers. And these laborers were essentially slaves. Uh, they had um, rights uh, that uh, were, in many respects, as limited as those of um, enslaved persons of African descent. Um, and so they were, they were exploited workers, and um, their presence on the island explains why Havana for many years, had one of Latin America's most thriving Chinatowns. If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to wait to listen to part two, it's available now on Patreon. South Pulse, hidden with the left. South Pulse, Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.